Hi, I'm Tawny Alvarez, and I'm a partner in Verrill's Employment and Labor Practice Group. I spend much of my workday advising clients on best practices to create a workplace and culture that helps them attract and retain talented individuals while simultaneously minimizing risk and staying in compliance with local, state, and federal labor and employment laws. This includes advising clients on wage and hour issues, anti-harassment and discrimination laws, assisting in workplace investigations, advising on leave of absences, and generally helping employers to comply with the law and maintain healthy and productive employees. Additionally, my job includes representing organizations in court or before administrative agencies should an applicant, employee, or former employee choose to utilize a litigation course of action. Now, during the course of my practice, one thing that has stuck out to me is that organizations that have created a respectful and inclusive work environment are better able to attract and retain top talent and minimize litigation. That's the topic of today's podcast, building a respectful and inclusive workplace. And how do we do that while simultaneously minimizing risk? That's the big question. So the goal of this podcast, it's not to change your company culture in one swift motion, but instead to understand how small acts of managers and employees, and in some cases owners, could be adversely affecting your business model and your ability to attract and retain the top talent. So in today's day and age, Information is coming at us a mile a minute. We're receiving texts and alerts on mobile devices, phone calls, emails, and believe it or not, we still have face-to-face interactions with other individuals. With all that information, decision makers need to prioritize how the information is processed and analyzed. What is one day that we do that? Well, by compartmentalizing information, and making assumptions or presumptions about individuals or circumstances based on past experiences. This is a form of bias, and understanding that bias is so important in creating a respectful and inclusive work environment. If you're currently in a safe place to do so, I'd love for you to close your eyes. Imagine you're driving down the highway and a police cruiser has a car pulled over on the side of the road. What does the car look like? What's its make and model? How old is the vehicle? What does the driver look like? Is the driver a man or a woman, young or old? What is their skin color? Your past experiences in many situations play a role in the car and the driver that you have imagined. Understanding this information is helpful when you need to consider the reason that you're making the employment decision you're making. And I urge all of you, as we are talking about these issues, to consistently look at yourself and to consider the biases that you have and make sure that your past experiences, while informing your future choices, are not limiting you or placing you in a box and creating some form of bias against other individuals. Now we know that every day employers are faced with a number of challenging situations. DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, is something that most, if not all, companies have on the top of their agenda. But how do we tackle that issue? And can we jump right into the analysis and simply create a DEI plan? 
For most companies, a foundational discussion focuses on respect and whether or not employees feel respected. This question must be answered before we can analyze what diversity means, and only then can we jump into discussing the differences between diversity and inclusion, and finally the role equity plays in that discussion. All of this, however, has to be analyzed within the framework of the company that you operate in. The current workforce is changing rapidly. The age of employees, how employees prefer to work and communicate, work and place arrangements, and the role of technology in all aspects of this analysis are things that need to be at top of mind for employers. Let's start, however, with what diversity is. For most individuals, the word diversity itself will quickly be associated with a quote-unquote type of diversity. It could be race or gender, but I urge you to think of diversity in broader terms. Think of socioeconomic class, undergraduate or graduate school, prior life experiences or even work experiences, political beliefs. At the same time, the list of categories of diversity also include a number of protected classes or categories that are protected by state, local, or federal employment law. These would include categories such as race, ethnicity, age, religion, national origin, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, disability status, and veteran status. I don't mean to minimize any of those very important diversity aspects, but I want everyone listening to the podcast to think of diversity in much broader terms. At the same point in time, you might be getting ready to fast forward through this portion of the podcast, thinking, I am in an organization that already has diversity initiatives in place. That's not my problem. Whether you have a diversity initiative that's required by law or initiated internally, it's important to understand why and what the potential ramifications from a legal standpoint are as to those diversity initiatives. One type of diversity initiative is an affirmative action plan. An affirmative action plan requires federal contractors and subcontractors to meet a number of obligations under the Vietnam-era Veterans Readjustment Assistant Act of 1974, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and Executive Order Number 11246. These programs provide requirements for meeting standards regarding employment of different individuals based off of the following categories race, color, gender, religion, national origin, veteran status, and disability status. If your organization is a federal contractor or subcontractor, requirements are going to include training programs and outreach efforts that are incorporated into the company's written personnel policies. Employers create written affirmative action programs, keep them on file, and update them annually. Those employers are also expected to have plans in place to attract, maintain, and promote individuals who fall within the protected categories. Now, affirmative action programs are different from diversity initiatives more generally. A diversity initiative is sometimes also known as a voluntary affirmative action program, but it's a bit different. The EEOC defines workplace diversity as a business management concept under which employers voluntarily promote an inclusive workplace. 
employers that value diversity create a culture of respect for individual differences in order to, quote, draw talent and ideas from all segments of the population and thereby potentially gain a competitive advantage in the increasingly global economy. The Code of Federal Regulations specifically notes that there are very limited circumstances under which voluntary affirmative action programs are appropriate one of which is adverse effect. Under Title VII, employers are prohibited from having practices, procedures, or policies that have an adverse impact on employees unless those practices or policies or procedures are justified by business necessity. In addition, Title VII also sets forth practices that tend to deprive persons of equal employment opportunity. Employers, labor organizations, and other people subject to Title VII may take affirmative action based on an analysis which reveals the facts that constitute actual or potential adverse impact if such adverse impact is likely to result from existing or contemplated practices. Accordingly, an organization could have a voluntary affirmative action program in order to decrease adverse effect. Another reason would be effects as a result of prior discriminatory practices. So employers, labor organizations, or other entities subject to Title VII may take affirmative action to correct the effects of prior discriminatory practices. So the effects of prior discriminatory practices can be initially identified by a comparison between the employer's workforce or a part of the workforce and an appropriate segment of the labor force. Finally, the third way under the Code of Federal Regulations in which a voluntary affirmative action program is appropriate is if there is a limited labor pool. Because of historical restrictions by employers, labor organizations, and others, there are circumstances in which the available pool of qualified minorities for employment or promotional opportunities is artificially limited in some way. In those situations, employers may, and in some cases are encouraged to, take affirmative action. This would include things such as training plans and programs, on-the-job training that emphasizes providing minorities and other individuals with opportunities, skills, and experience necessary to perform functions of skilled trades, crafts, or professions. Now, Diversity initiatives often include goals as to how the organization can attract and retain more diverse groups of applicants and therefore employees. The Supreme Court in United Steelworkers v. Weber set forth the following criteria to establish an appropriate diversity initiative. So while we have the rules set forth in the Code of Federal Regulations, we also need to be mindful of what the case law is regarding the subject. So the Supreme Court has said that the plan should be remedial in nature, and that would be in a case in which past discrimination or possible adverse impact has occurred. The plan does not unnecessarily interfere with the interest of non-minority individuals, and the plan or program is temporary in nature with the goal of achieving some type of balance without maintenance. So these are the things that companies should be keeping in mind when considering diversity initiatives that are not required under federal affirmative action programs. 
So we now understand what diversity is. And as I'm sure many of you know, diversity is different from inclusion. One often used way to describe the difference is diversity is having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice, and belonging is having that voice be heard. An inclusive environment is one where employees are treated with respect and in a fair manner in which they have equal access to resources and opportunities and are provided with the opportunity to fully contribute and participate in the organization's success. There are a multitude of organizations that can check the diversity box, but who do not have an inclusive environment, and it's important to understand the difference. One of the ways that employers have attempted to create more inclusive environments is through affinity groups. Affinity groups are also known as employee or business resource groups. And they're groups that are organized based off of social identity, some form of shared characteristic, or some other similar life experience. Generally, these affinity groups are initiated by employees, and they often involve or implicate some form of a protected class. This would include things such as sex, gender, sexual orientation, race, national origin, disability, or veteran status. Some examples of affinity groups include women in the workplace or working parents, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered groups, and any other groups that's based off of a common set of interests that simultaneously is protected under state, federal, or local law, right? You can have affinity groups that don't fall within one of those protected categories, but in most cases, you are going to find that it touches in some way on a protected category. Now, there are a whole host of benefits and risks to having affinity groups. I know it's surprising to all of you, but let's start with talking about the benefits. I know most often I'm talking about the risks. Some of the benefits are having affinity group has been shown to help in attracting, recruiting, and retaining employees. In most situations, it helps to promote diversity and cultural awareness and assists in creating a more inclusive work environment. It's been reported that affinity groups are helpful in increasing employee job satisfaction, morale, and productivity generally. In many situations, it helps to foster professional development, and it assists in mentoring and helping individuals to learn through mentoring and networking processes. In many ways, it helps to open up the channels for an open dialogue and a more easy exchange of ideas. Additionally, these groups help to provide support for other employees so that they feel as though they have a community or other individuals who they can go to should they experience an issue. Also, in addition to the attracting and recruiting aspect of this, in many cases, this can help to enhance an employer's public image in marketing or other business development or external efforts to show the organization is committed to creating an inclusive environment. I started with those advantages, but you knew that if you're listening to a podcast by an attorney, you're also going to hear the risks or the disadvantages with having affinity groups. Some of those risks or disadvantages are things that easily can be worked out as a result of appropriate prior planning. 
But before you create an affinity group, I think it's important for you to be mindful of the disadvantages so that you can attempt to create policies and practices to limit the effect that these risks have on your organization. So the first issue is normally that you experience employee resistance or confusion as to the group's purpose or participation guidelines. Having participation guidelines is key. The purpose of these affinity groups is not just for everyone to sit down and to air all their grievances, but instead have very specific guidelines as to what this group is attempting to achieve. You should be mindful and make sure that all participants are aware of discrimination, harassment, hostile work environment, policies and practices that you have set in place in your organization. And individuals who are creating or overseeing affinity groups must be extremely mindful that they don't recognize some affinity groups and recognize others. So are they treating all affinity groups similarly? Are they being mindful of the topics that are being discussed or comments that are being made during group meetings and being mindful that those statements and comments aren't offensive or otherwise violating discrimination or harassment policies? Be mindful and prepared for employees who maybe are not a part of the affinity group opposing the mission of other affinity groups or feeling as though they are unnecessary. Also, management or other members of the team treating certain affinity groups better or differently from other affinity groups. While we're talking about the discrimination or harassment aspects of affinity groups, we also need to be mindful that our managers are not retaliating against any individual for participating in some form of an affinity group. We also have to be mindful of wage and hour issues under the Fair Labor Standards Act or comparable state statutes. If an employee is attending an affinity group during their lunch break, is that paid time? One would think so because the discussions are to further benefit the organization itself. And in those situations, pay should occur. If it's occurring during a previously scheduled work break, does that mean another break needs to be offered so that you are offering or providing a break from work pursuant to specific state laws? Additionally, you must be mindful of potential unfair labor practices claims that could be brought under the National Labor Relations Act. Specifically, if information concerning the terms and conditions of employment are discussed at the affinity group, and in most cases they will be, employers need to be mindful that they're not violating or limiting employees' Section 7 rights to participate in some form of concerted activity for their mutual aid or protection. Affinity groups serve as a really positive aspect or way in which to move forward with any attempts at inclusion. The key aspect of it is, is making sure that you have policies and practices and expectations in place to limit the exposure or disadvantages that can come with having affinity groups. So we've talked about diversity very broadly, and we've also talked about inclusion and in both situations, what have I focused on? The legal risk. Absolutely, you know that's my job, 
But even without discussing the legal implications, something that underlies both of these concepts is really respect. Respect and making sure that your management team and your employees generally understand what respect means to your organization and making sure that you have a management team that is not allowing disrespectful behavior to occur. So what constitutes disrespectful behavior in today's day and age? I think people feel as though in our current society that the idea of disrespectful behavior is either so broad that they can't speak to each other or so limited considering the culture in which we all currently find ourselves in. Things to be mindful of that very specifically, however, are a form of disrespectful behavior Yelling, shouting, or using profanity in the workplace. Spreading malicious rumors or gossip. Yeah, it may not be discriminatory on its face, but it's not good for creating a healthy work environment. Demeaning, belittling, or humiliating someone. Treat people the way that you want to be treated and be mindful that your managers are doing that. Managers or supervisors who abuse their authority. Individuals making unwelcome remarks, innuendos, or taunting each other. Even if that is just in jest, you don't know when it's going to cross a line and limiting any type of unwelcome remarks or taunting at the onset is the best practice. I shouldn't have to tell you twice, but racial or ethnic slurs or derogatory nicknames Humiliating staff in front of coworkers or other individuals, threatening or bullying individuals, these are all examples of forms of disrespectful behavior that should not be occurring in your work environment. As I listed those things, however, did any of these behaviors remind you of something or maybe someone? If it reminded you of something, I hope that that something is that these types of activities are those that are likely to lead to litigation. Oftentimes when there is threatening or bullying going on or unkind remarks, people will presume that they are being treated the way that they are being treated because of some aspects of themselves. As an example, my boss doesn't treat me with respect because I'm a woman. Or my coworkers don't talk to me because I'm Hispanic and they're Italian. This may not, in fact, be the case, but the disrespectful behavior at the heart of the issue can cause these perceptions to persist. When this happens, there are legal ramifications in the form of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation lawsuits. And in some cases, this type of behavior can lead to the loss of contracts and other forms of, of business or revenue generation. Additionally, I know that why always focus on the negative, let's think about some positive things that could come out of having an environment that focuses on respectful behavior as opposed to disrespectful behavior. Research shows that a respectful environment's going to improve employee morale, job satisfaction, and the ability of your employees to work as a team. It's gonna create lower absenteeism and turnover. It's surprisingly going to increase your productivity. Not just that, 
but your employees are going to be better equipped to manage conflict collaboratively, which means they're going to be able to solve their own problems without taking up time and energy of managers and supervisors. Speaking of managers and supervisors, they're a key element of this discussion. So what are some of the things that managers in your organization can do to help you to create a more respectful and with hope, diverse and inclusive environment? Well, I'd say that's easy, but it's something that all of our managers and supervisors are always consistently working to be better at. First, set clear expectations of behavior. Make sure that your managers are communicating this appropriately to employees in a way in which they understand it, whether that's through written policies or verbal cues, but specifically, do as I do, not as I say. So when we have employees or managers who are saying one thing and doing another, that's when we get into problems. So when they set clear expectations, that's helpful. But most important, be a positive role model. Live pursuant to the policies or practices in which you're setting as the expectation. By being that positive role model, you're going to be in a position to create a more positive work environment. We all know that every day doesn't go as expected. Clients, consumers, or customers have demands that in some cases may feel as though they cannot be completed pursuant to the, the expectations that have previously been set. A manager's role, however, is to create that positive work environment and help other employees to feel that positive energy throughout the organization. How do you do this? Well, you make it how you do business. This isn't something that you allowed to slip or that isn't a priority every single day. You need to make sure that your culture is such in which you treat people with respect, whether they're inside the organization, outside the organization, or just stepping within your building for a few minutes once a year. What does that mean, however, when someone is disrespectful? It means that we have to stop it immediately. We need to make sure we're disciplining individuals who are not abiding by the expectations that we have for the creation of a respectful work environment. What's the best way to do that? Maintain open communication. Make sure you are continuously speaking with your employees about what your expectations are and making sure that they are aware of situations in which they have not met those expectations and have behaved in a way in which you believe is disrespectful. As we've mentioned previously, this is just a primer on things that you should be mindful of in creating a respectful and inclusive environment. Unsurprisingly, it also focused a lot on the legal implications associated with this important topic and creating a respectful and inclusive work environment. One thing that you need to remember and repeat is culture is set at the top. If diversity, inclusion, and respect are not part of your manager's everyday behavior, no change in culture is going to occur. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Veral Voices. And don't hesitate to reach out to me, Tani Alvarez, at talvarez at veral-law.com or by phone at 207 253 
1-800-273-4522. If you have any questions concerning this podcast or steps to take to create a respectful and inclusive work environment, thank you so much. Feral Voices is a podcast series produced and recorded by the law firm Feral Dana LLP. Our content is intended to inform and hopefully sometimes to entertain. It is not intended as legal advice or legal opinion. While we hope these podcasts help you get to know us a little better, they do not create an attorney-client relationship. To contact us, find us online at veraldana.com.